0: On October 26th of 1973, American jazz musician Herbie Hancock released his twelfth studio album, Headhunters. Hancock was tired of everything heavy and wanted something lighter. And With that in mind, the keyboardist shed his former backing band and guitars and recorded his Miles meets Sly Stone masterpiece. By reinventing an old classic and creating a new jazz standard, Hancock pioneered the jazz funk movement. Welcome to the 500 Albums podcast, where we go through the Rolling Stones' top 500 list of greatest albums of all time, as selected by a panel of musicians, music critics, and journalists, and published by Rolling Stone Magazine in 2003. My name is Irvin, and today we are looking at number 498 on the list, which is Headhunters by Herbie Hancock. So once again, we're back with a new album and this time it's different once again, not a standard studio album, not a live album, but this time a fully instrumental album. So that's very interesting. I'm not that big into jazz myself, but I had heard of the name Herbie Hancock before. I knew he was important, but didn't really know what his role was within this jazz movement and what his history exactly is. So it was really interesting for me to find out more about him. And because I'm not a big jazz fan, I am not as knowledgeable about this subject, but I've tried to do enough research so I know what Hancock was about and what he had done in his career and to see kind of what impact this album had on the rest of the genre. So let's jump into the artists, shall we? Herbie Hancock is an American jazz musician, composer, mainly a pianist, and also an actor from Chicago, Illinois. Hancock was born in 1940 in Chicago, and he started playing music from a very young age. At the age of seven, he took up the piano, and he quickly became known as a musical prodigy. And he demonstrated this at the age of 11, when he got to play a solo in the Mozart Piano Concerto with the Chicago Symphony. In his teens, he continued playing, but he never really had a jazz teacher and he mostly learned by ear. He was very inspired by listening to old records from the high lows. And in that way, he developed a sense of harmony and decided to further his studies at college. And during this study, he came into contact with different pianists and jazz musicians and including Chris Anderson once he heard chris anderson play and hancock recalled the following about that experience quote chris anderson is a master of harmony and sensitivity after hearing him play just once i begged him to let me study with him end quote and so he did he was taken under the wing of chris anderson and developed his style and started playing in live bands and after finishing his studies in 1961 Hancock was invited by trumpeter and vocalist Donald Byrd to join his band in New York City. This was a really big gig for Hancock, so he accepted this invitation. And shortly after, he was even offered his own solo contract at Blue Note Records. So with the availability of releasing his own solo records, Hancock's notoriety and success grew even more. And In 1963, Jazz legend Miles Davis asked Hancock to join his band for the Seven Steps to Heaven sessions. And he remained playing with Davis on live performances as well for up to almost five years. And this time with Davis proved to be very important for Hancock, but also for Davis, as Hancock influenced Davis's style, but he also developed more of his own. He converted to the Rhodes electric piano and he started to play differently And this is also something he talks about in an interview he did for Wired, where he and Jacob Collier talk about different ways of playing and explaining harmonies to other people.
1: I had a really great experience when I was working with Miles Davis. I felt like I was in a rut playing the same stuff and I was getting depressed because of it. And Miles said something to me. I thought he said, don't play the butter notes, right? And so I thought, what do you mean by that? (laughs) And so I started thinking, okay, what could butter be? What is butter? Then I started thinking, what are the obvious notes, for example, in a chord? The obvious notes are the third and the seventh. Hmm. So I said, oh, maybe if I leave those out, it changed everything for me from that moment on. I got more applause for that solo (laughs) than I did the whole week. (laughs) Wow. I wouldn't play the voicings I play today, if that had not happened. That's amazing, you know?
0: Hancock eventually left Davis's band, reportedly because Davis thought that Hancock didn't want to play with the band because he was on a honeymoon. But this was a misunderstanding. But Hancock leaving a band turned out to be a good thing, actually. Because in 1969, Hancock was able to form his own sextet, and he created his own groundbreaking jazz rock style hancock embraced even more electronics into his style and he recruited patrick gleason who was known for using his sound altering pedals and hancock tried to experiment with that as well and experimenting even further hancock allowed a looser atmosphere but still maintaining complex rhythms and song structure and this created their own corner in the avant-garde scene in the 70s however the sextet began using both english and swahili names to try and embrace their roots more and playing a maybe more African-inspired style. Hancock used the name Wandishi. This project wasn't as successful as he had experienced previously. So in 1973, they dropped the name and Hancock decided to break up with this band as it wasn't making enough money for him to keep on doing this. So this move combined with his newly found faith in Buddhism, Hancock decided to go another direction in his career And he really took it up to himself to seek out what he really wanted to do this time. And he figured out that his ultimate goal was really to make audiences happy. And this led into today's record, Headhunters. And I'll get more into that backstory later on. Hancock is also known for his later work with the group VSOP, which is a group that was formed by ex-band members of Miles Davis' group. Hancock is also known for producing multiple soundtracks and he has been involved in movies and TV shows. Hancock is often referred to as a musical chameleon, shifting and implementing a lot of different playing styles and sounds over his career. He started out with classic jazz and classic concert pieces. This led into a more electronic, later disco and funk style, also incorporating some African inspirations. Later in his career he also started collaborating more and I'll touch more upon that later. Hancock also featured as an actor in several movies and tv shows and he mostly made cameo appearances as himself but he also appeared in just acting roles in a smaller degree. Lastly, Hancock has been awarded generously. He was awarded an Academy Award for the Best Original Score and multiple Grammys and one of those Grammys is the Album of the Year. And this is the highest achievable award for music. So now that I have dived into Herbie Hancock's career a bit, I would like to look a bit more specifically into the releases to this point. As mentioned before, Hancock's solo career started when he got signed to Blue Note Records and his debut was appropriately named Taking Off as this album was a big success and it really took off his career. The album was in a hard bop style and it was a great success with its characteristic horns and rhythmic section. The bluesy track Watermelon Man made it to the top 100 singles charts and it became a jazz standard and this once again means that it's a very important composition and it's widely known, performed, covered and taught by other jazz musicians. Hancock's solo career continued successfully, and during his career, he created even more widely recognized compositions. The most notable ones are Maiden Voyage, Cantaloupe Island, Goodbye Childhood, and Speak Like a Child. In 1969, however, Hancock signed with a new label and released the album Fat Albert Rotunda, And this featured music that he originally made for the TV special, Hey Hey Hey, it's Fat Albert. And this album marked a change in the style for Hancock. It was of course a TV special, so it wasn't typical jazz. But it was formed around soul music, instead of the usual classic jazz as a bass. And this style really continued on on his following records. And these following records are usually labeled as the Mondishi Trilogy. And the final album of this trilogy sextant of 1973 was released on yet another record label and once again marked the change in the style for hancock at this point he took more inspiration from funk and electronic music something he had already been experiencing with during the miles davis era but he really used the synthesizers to create his own sound and even though the album sextant was considered to be commercial flop in retrospect it has been very important for hancock's career as it pushed them even more into an electronic sound. And Paste Magazine's Jesse Jarno referred to it in a 2005 article as, quote, an uncompromising avant funk masterpiece, end quote. So what if we look at the time surrounding this album? There are some notable events that happen, of course, during this time, but because the album does not feature any lyrics, it's kind of hard to make a connection between these events and what can be heard on the record. So instead, I'll just look at general events surrounding both the time and the area that Hancock was surrounded by at this time. So Hancock spent most of the early 70s in San Francisco. This is also where he recorded Headhunters and all of the One Dishy Trilogy records. During this time, San Francisco really grew as a liberal hotspot in the United States. It became a safe haven for socially marginalized individuals like the LGBT community and Asian and African-American people. And this is also something that reflected into the nightclubs, as the city featured more African-American artists and invited very wide audiences to listen and enjoy this music. A lot of artists embraced the the influences from their own ancestry. The lines between the different kinds of audiences kind of blended and the walls were broken down. And even though the jazz fusion genre wasn't really defined, the term was used a lot for a mixture of jazz improvisation with the power and rhythms of rock in the late 60s. But if we look at the music, up until 1967, the worlds of jazz and rock never really crossed, But as soon as rock music started becoming more creative and jazz musicians started stepping out of the boundaries of the traditional classics the styles kind of blended together and when jazz legend john coltrane died in 1967 and rock music started becoming the most popular genre in america downbeat music claimed quote jazz as we know it is dead end quote and in a way this is true because jazz evolved into something different, and something untraditional, more experimental. And jazz and rock musicians started collaborating, and they started performing together at different festivals, jazz clubs, and different music venues, including the Fillmore in San Francisco. The early pioneers of the jazz fusion style emphasized exploration, energy, and intensity in their playing. And these are also common for the rock genre. And examples of pioneers of the jazz fusion genre are larry Coryell, charles lloyd jeremy stake frank zappa and of course miles davis and herbie hancock was a part of this band and on their album bitches brew of 1969 davis abandoned the swing beat in favor of rock and roll backbeats and bass guitar grooves davis plugged in his own trumpet like people would with an electric guitar and this combined with hancock's electric piano And the rest of the band, they created a sound that was mostly unknown to the jazz genre. It turned out to be a great success. And meanwhile, jazz purists accused Davis of betraying the essence of jazz. The wider audience seemed to appreciate it. So now let's jump into the album. The album Headhunters is Herbie Hancock's 12th studio album, and it was recording over the course of one week in September of 1973 at Wally Hyder Studios, a different fur trading corporation in San Francisco. Most recordings took place in the evening, and they were done by Hancock's newly formed group, the Headhunters. Hancock had grown frustrated with his prior band, Wandishi, and its open ended approach. Hancock recalled his experience with his band as follows, quote, There were times we shared so much empathy and connection on stage that it really did feel spiritual, but when Modishi was off, when we didn't connect, the experience wasn't pleasant. And what we were playing just sounded like noise, even to us, end quote. So this was the reason that Hancock decided to disband this group. And he started fresh with a new band, the Headhunters. The new group consisted of Herbie Hancock himself, of course, on synths and keys. Benny Maupin on horns. Paul Jackson on bass and regular guitar. Harvey Mason on drums. And Bill Summers on percussion. Hancock came to the idea of this band. In one of his chanting sessions he held as part of his Nishran Buddhism faith, he later recalled, quote, I wanted something primitive and earthy, but with an intellectual component. A smart title that would get people thinking. The Mwandishi albums incorporated African imagery on their covers. And I definitely wanted the jungle in the title. It wouldn't be bad if the title had a sexual meaning too. This was a lot of ask for a title. But as I was chanting, it suddenly hit me. Headhunters. It was the perfect title. The perfect triple entendre. The jungle. The intellectual. And the sex. End quote. Herbie Hancock co-produced this record together with longtime producer David Rubinson. And this is the second album that Hancock had been involved producing. The other one being the album for the TV special, Fat Albert Rotunda from 1969. The choice to self-produce was most likely from the desire to expand his sound and to draw on unconventional inspirations. So besides the music, one of the most recognizable things of this album is the cover art. The image was designed by San Francisco-based artist Victor Moscoso, who had worked on album covers of other artists before. And the artwork depicts a pianist in a disc-shaped play play mask. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. And that's traditionally used during the goalie dances of the Boale people of the Ivory Coast. Once again drawing on the African inspiration. And the eyes of the mask can also resemble radio knobs. And the mouth of the mask kinda looks like a VU meter. And that was used to indicate the loudness in electronic and recording tools. So now if we look at the sound of the album, Hancock really wanted to change compared to his previous records. And in the liner notes of the album, he explains that he wanted to create something more down to earth and was tired of playing heavy music. He wanted to play something lighter. So how did he exactly come to this sound? Well, when Hancock consulted into his meditation and chanting, he got the inspiration of funk music by the likes of Sly Stone. And he recalls this experience as follows. Quote, Suddenly I saw an image of me sitting with Sly Stone's band, playing this funky music with him. And I loved it. But then the image changed. And it was my band playing that funky stuff. And Sly Stone was playing with me. that felt strange and uncomfortable. End quote. Hancock was held back at first, but he started exploring this idea further. Quote, I decided to ask myself a few simple questions. Was there anything wrong with funky music? No. Was it somehow worse to play funky music with my own band than with someone else's? No. Then why was I feeling so dismissive of the idea? I had to face my own prejudice, or as a Buddhist practice says, face the negativity, my fundamental darkness, and defeat it that's the moment I decided to start a funk band. End quote. So this is how his new band started jamming. And this later turned into the first track of the album, Chameleon. Now you can really tell that this album has a lot of funky grooves as it incorporates the electronic synths that Hancock was experimenting with. And he's using sounds that are very typical of funk music but never really heard in jazz. So then if we look at the track list, the album only features four songs. So, I'll look into every song separately, and starting with the jam I mentioned, Chameleon. And I think the name of this song can be referred to Hancock's chameleon like quality of adapting different musical styles and constantly changing into his environment and to his feelings. And Chameleon opens up with maybe the most recognizable bassline ever. It is played by Hancock on an ARP Odyssey synthesizer. Composition slowly builds up, adding more instruments as it goes, starting with a funky drum beat. Then guitars. goes on for a couple minutes until we hear the first breaks in the beat and highlighting the horns. At around three and a half minutes the song goes back into the bass line and drum beat and slowly starts building again. This time, to add keys and admitting horns up until the end of the section. We've now reached the halfway point of the track, and we hear a bass solo kick in together with drums and guitars. Essentially, keys, and a string section. The song continues with these instruments, featuring more strings, until the horns indicate the end of the section. The final minutes of the composition are then a reprise of the first section, this time fading out into the next track. An edited version of this track was later released, and shortening the track with about 13 minutes. The second track of the album is Watermelon Man. And yes, this is the same track as the one on Hancock's debut in 1962, but this time he radically reworked it, combining funk elements into the composition. Hancock was also very inspired by African music. In particular, the way that drummers play one specific part of the drum, and then creating a whole sound together. And he wanted to create something similar with the way that this song is composed. And they took another interesting influence from the Mubudi Pygmies of Central Africa, and they imitated the Hindu. And this is a style of singing slash whistling that's characteristic for these tribes. And percussionist Bill Summers recreated this sound, blowing into beer bottles. And this can be heard on the intro of the song before it kicks in to the relaxed and funky group. ends with the whistling once again. And it creates a very iconic and recognizable sound. And even though this unique sound, many jazz purists still prefer the original version. So as we then flip over the album and side B starts with the Sly Stone-inspired Sly. It opens up with a great horn section, and this repeats throughout the first couple minutes of the song. The song then transforms into this fast-paced, funky improvisation, featuring Benny Maupin's iconic soprano sax. The halfway point of the song, the section concludes, and the song continues into one of my favorite parts of this album. Another funky improvisation, but now featuring Hancock's electric piano, and this improvisation feels free and loose. It is very thought of carefully so that everything comes together greatly, and I love this drum both following and leading the other instruments. The ending of the song I think is great too, and gets us to the last song of the album. This is Vein Melter, and it brings down the energy a lot, delivering a very beautiful composition. The song was written after a friend of Hancock died of a heroin overdose. This sentiment, combined with Harvey Mason's snare drums, makes this composition sound like a funeral march. Besides the drums, it features Hancock's electric piano and synths again and a string section. I think this is a very beautiful song, and a perfect ending to such an energetic album. So, what happened when the album came out? For purists, this album was yet another sign of heresy, differing from the traditional jazz concepts and diving into the unknown. And as these critics were still recovering from Miles Davis's early move into the plugged in and electronic music, they did not really appreciate this one either. And they slammed this album in their reviews. But this did not stop Headhunters from being a great success, though. Because of its very relevant incorporation of funk music and danceable grooves, the album became a great success with the crossover and more open minded audiences. The record became the largest selling jazz album of all time, selling over a million copies. And this held the record for a few years. The album spent 42 weeks on the Billboard chart and I was able to reach a lot of Americans. And Hancock reflected on this a year later, saying, quote, Sure, I'm getting bigger white audiences, but I'm also getting a big black audience, which I never had. I've finally been able to come out with some music the general black public can relate to, end quote. With time, the album was also recognized by the jazz scene. And this is notable because the very funky song Chameleon is now recognized as a jazz standard. The Headhunters was a really quintessential release in Hancock's career. And it is a defining moment in the genre of jazz too. It really broke down the wall between rock, funk, and jazz music. Hancock continued making records with this group but Mike Clark replaced the drummer Harvey Mason as he was very much in demand for studio recordings. The group made the albums Thrust, Manchild and the live album Flood. And after this, Hancock recruited once again a new band and he later reunited with ex-members of Miles Davis's band to form VSOP. And while Hancock was doing this, the original Handhunters made a couple albums on their own. In 1983, uh, Herbie Hancock once again had great success reinventing himself, this time with what some claim to be the very first jazz hip-hop song, Rocket, from the album Future Shock. This song became an anthem for breakdancers and the hip-hop scene, as it was the first mainstream song to feature scratching, and it also featured a very popular animated video that was shown on MTV a lot of times. Hancock continued creating music, collaborating with even more and different types of artists in an array of different genres. And the most notable releases are River, the Joni Letters of 2007, and The Imagine Project from 2010. The latter one being a cover album with Hancock's interpretations of classic songs from artists like John Lennon, Bob Dylan, Sam Cooke and Bob Marley. And it features some contemporary artists such as Pink, John Legend and Seal. After the release of Headhunters, Herbie Hancock also contributed to more movies and TV broadcasts, even educational shows from the BBC and PBS, and most recently has been a consulting producer for the Pixar movie Soul. And another little interesting tidbit about the album Headhunters is that it was added into the National Recording Registry in 2007, and this registry collects Quote, Culturally, historically, or aesthetically important sound recordings from the 20th century. End quote. And besides all the big successes for Herbie Hancock himself, the album was a great influence on other artists in the genre. And it spawned its own subgenre, jazz funk, into the mainstream for most of the 70s and early 80s. So if we look at more recent artists that were influenced by this album, the jazz artist Jacob Collier, who I've mentioned before from the video, was also heavily inspired by Herbie Hancock. And other artists that maybe are not typically associated with jazz are the group Chicano Batman and the rapper Kendrick Lamar. Their sound and composition is sometimes compared and connected to Herbie Hancock's composition on Handhunters. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening once again. Make sure to subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you listen to it. You can also rate the podcast in different apps. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at 500albumspod. That's at 500albumspod. Or you can email me with maybe your favorite tracks of the album, any questions or suggestions. And you can do this on 500albumspod at gmail.com. And next week, we'll be looking at number 497, which is the self-titled The Stone Roses by The Stone Roses. So make sure to listen to that album, and I'll see you next week. Bye.